You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Mossman, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. I had trouble with today's episode. Usually, when I'm working on a show, it goes one of two ways. Either I have a plan in mind already, and I actively work toward telling that story, or I'll be researching and some fantastic story will unfold and grab me, and I'll find that I just have to tell it. But neither of those things happened this time. Originally, I started out with only the vaguest outline of what I wanted today's show to be about. I hoped that through my reading, a miraculous story would jump out and beg me to tell it. And a few did stand out, but none of them were stories I felt I had to tell. At least, not in any real depth. There are a few reasons for this. First of all, compared to or maybe taken with, the story of Hizir Barbarossa, many of these stories are just more of the same. Ottoman corsairs and European navies traded territory, corsairs took slaves and Europeans sunk ships, and everybody was honored all around. And it became clear that there was just no purpose in talking about every piece of territory that the Ottomans or the Europeans traded back and forth. Now, those were certainly stories that were important to the people that lived through it, but after a certain point, they start to lose an emotional impact. There's nothing new here. Well, that's not true. There's a lot that's new here, but there's very little that I think I can add to some of these stories, which brings me to the other reason I had trouble today. It's a problem of scope. You see, one of the characters that I want to talk about, uh, Dragut, the drawn sword of Islam, well, he has a fascinating story, and part of me wants to tell that story in real depth, but when I start to think about the sheer size of that story, and then all of the tertiary stories that go along with it, well, I'm staring down a daunting task. The tale of Barbary Pirates really needs to be its own show. I mean, look at the timelines here, and the Mediterranean stories really match up with the Caribbean pirates that showed up a hundred or so years later. Barbarossa would probably be the Francis Drake character. The characters I want to talk about today, well, they were all quasi-legal privateers working for powerful empires. They stretched the line of legality, if never exactly going over it. 
their story would be almost analogous to the Buccaneers, but it would be at least as big as the whole story of the Buccaneers. That's been, what, two years of this show? I don't want to dive into that. I'm not the person to dive into that. Not in any real depth. Now, I think it would be amazing if someone did, though. And who is to say that you aren't that person? I know there are several of our patrons who have some background in the Barbary Pirates. I know that many of our European listeners have a particular interest in their stories. See, I have an educational and cultural background in European and Atlantic history. I feel comfortable talking about these things, even if I do occasionally step on some landmines, but I have very little background in Mediterranean or Middle Eastern history. Throughout this series on the Barbary Corsairs, I've been learning the basics of a lot of that, especially the cultural side of it, as I've gone along, and I'm just a lot less comfortable talking about that stuff. Now, I think it would be amazing if someone with that background, culturally and educationally, was to do that show. Imagine a British person of North African descent telling these stories with what I assume would be a fantastic accent, or imagine a Spanish or Italian person telling these stories from the European point of view. I was actually contacted by one Italian listener who, well, first of all, she had an Italian edition of a general history of the pirates with different woodcuts in it than the regular American or English version, and they looked so cool. But I wondered what somebody like that, somebody from Italy, would think about the story of Barbary pirates, what their point of view would be on it. So if you are considering doing a podcast, a history podcast in particular, and you think you have a unique perspective, I urge you to take a long look at the Barbary Pirates. Theirs is a story worth telling, and if you feel you're the person to tell it, I think maybe you should. Really, what I want to dive into today is the era of Barbary piracy that would be analogous not with Drake and not with the Buccaneers, but to the golden age of Caribbean piracy. It lasted about 15 years, from 1605 to 1620 or so, and the Barbary Coast became a hotbed of real piracy. In a lot of ways, it looked a lot like Benjamin Hornigold and Black Bart Roberts and Jack Rackham and Nassau and Woods Rogers. It had the same tenor, maybe. And I'll be moving on to that story soon, but today... Rather than take a deep look at the latter two-thirds of the 16th century Mediterranean, I'm going to give a highlight reel, maybe. It's going to be a show that's quick and dirty, and there's going to be a lot of names and dates thrown at you, but it will get us where we need to go to continue. This is episode 81, From What Seas Are Ye Come? We should... Begin today's story by closing some of the stories of the earliest Barbary Corsairs. For example, Kurtuglu Muslihedin Rais, the elder Kurtuglu. He was, after the battle for Rhodes, he was named the Baylor Bay of Rhodes. His career was filled with clashes with Catholic ships, mostly Venetian ships, and usually he won those, but not always. But he was called away from his base on Rhodes about 1530 to traverse the Adriatic Sea hunting for Catholic vessels, and it was in conflict with one of those Venetian ships that he was killed, probably in 1535, that would have been three years before the Battle of Prevesa. But he left behind a son, 
Kartuglu Hizir, named after Barbarossa, and this younger Hizir would soon earn the title of Rais. Now, let's move on and pick up the story of the Barbary pirates in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Prevesa. Of Sinan Rais, after his performance at Prevesa, and he actually may have been the man that won that battle for the Ottomans with his fantastic tactical thinking, but after that battle we don't have any more solid historical records of Sinan, of the great Jew. There are a few mentions of a Jewish corsair, and occasionally he does get confused in the older histories with a different and more illustrious Sinan, but nothing about that is conclusive. It's unlikely that Sinan died at Prevesa. He probably would have been mentioned, but he may have died shortly thereafter. It's important to note, though, that his young son was being held captive in the court at Elba. Shortly before Prevesa, or maybe just after the battle, Sinan's son was sailing to meet up with his father when a Maltese privateer vessel captured that ship and took the young boy into custody. The story goes that Sinan's son was given to the Duke of Elba and baptized into the Catholic faith. He was to be raised at the court there at Elba to be a good subject of Charles V, and there's almost certainly some truth to that. He certainly would have been baptized, and captives who were important, or at least related to important people, well, they were usually treated well enough, as long as the ransom that they might earn was still on the table. I like to imagine that after the battle at Prevesa, Sinan Rais was killed in action, attempting a daring, if foolhardy, raid to rescue his son, but we don't know how he died. But Hizir Barbarossa, after the battle, returned to his base just off the coast of Anatolia, very near Istanbul, and announced his intention to retire. He handed all of his naval commands over to his closest and one of his oldest friends, Turgut Rais, commonly called Dragut by the Europeans. Now, Dragut took up this command. He took it solemnly, but I think he was eager for it. But Barbarossa received another message from Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. This was that second offer of titles and lands and power, and if he needed it, the whole of Africa. All he would have to do was switch sides and fight for Europe. Again, Barbarossa declined, and Charles... Well, he reacted this time. He ordered Andrea Doria to raise a fleet of 80 Genoan and mercenary ships to hunt down Dragut and destroy Barbarossa's fleet. The emperor's orders regarding Dragut were to, quote, hunt him out and endeavor by all possible means to purge the seas of so insufferable a nuisance, end quote. With Sinan's son in captivity, it's possible that Charles was planning here to capture all of Barbarossa's closest friends and allies in a bid to turn him against Suleiman. If he had everyone that Barbarossa cared for, maybe he would switch sides if their lives were on the line, and as far as the capturing of friends went, that appeared to be working. Doria set out with his 80 Genoan and mercenary ships and split them up into squadrons of about 10 ships each, now, one of those squadrons was led by Doria's nephew, a fiery, violent, and egotistical character who 
oftentimes got himself in trouble, and Andrea Doria actually lost quite a bit of face pulling him out of the fire on more than one occasion. But it was this nephew that heard the sound of a sustained cannonade off the island of Capraia. That's the northernmost island in the Tuscan archipelago. His squadron went to investigate, and when they arrived at the source of the cannon fire, well, whoever had been shooting the cannons off, probably the corsairs, well, they were already gone, but it was clear what that cannonade had been about. There was an ancient Roman-built seaside fortress on the island, and it had been turned into a pile of rubble. It was utterly demolished. Most of the soldiers occupying the fortress were either dead or captured. Most of the women in the town nearby were held on board one or another of the galleys, and most of the treasure that the town had held was now being carried off by the corsairs. However, there were some townspeople remaining, and they pointed out the direction that the pirates had gone. The younger Doria, the nephew of Andrea, followed that trail, and he found the corsairs. He found them on Corsica at the Gulf of Girolata on 15 June 1540. Now, they were engaged ashore. Most of them were either careening their vessels or resting or haggling over their plunder, according to some historians. Many older historians will go into lurid detail of exactly how the pirates were treating some of their prisoners, most of the haggling seems to have been in violent contests between corsairs over the most beautiful women and boys they had captured. But that may be all myth. The actual first-hand accounts we have show us the corsairs mostly napping or cooking or eating the cooking. It was mundane, comparatively speaking. But whatever the reality, the Catholic fleet caught the corsairs unprepared. Now, the Gulf of Girolata is a remote bay. It's far removed from any established shipping lanes, so Dragut assumed that his fleet would go unnoticed. And that is why he didn't leave any galleys to defend the harbor. So six Genoese galleys rode in and opened fire on one of the ships at anchor in the bay. It was the ship closest to the mouth of the bay. Dragut, well, he heard the cannon fire, naturally, everybody on shore did, but he saw that this was a tiny force of Catholic galleys. There were only six ships there. So he ordered his men to take to their stations and go crush those Genoese galleys. Dragut got his ships in close enough to fire, and a fierce fight ensued between his nine Ottoman galleys and Doria's six galleys but that was exactly what the Genoese commander wanted. See, they were firing in the general direction of that galley that was closest to the harbor mouth, but they were intentionally missing. They knew that there were prisoners on board that galley, at least more than likely, and they didn't want to drown any chained-up Italians on board. They engaged the pirates there, but only to keep them occupied. The initial barrage against that galley at anchor and the fight that they engaged in, well, it was all part of a trap. With Dragut and his nine galleys well within range, Doria sprang the trap. Fifteen more galleys sailed in and surrounded the corsairs. Now, Dragut couldn't disengage from the fight with those first six galleys, 
If he tried to, he would wind up taking fire from behind, and he couldn't defend from the new ships that came into the harbor without disengaging. Dragut saw almost immediately that he had been defeated. He'd been not outfought, but outthought. So he raised the white flag. Dragut and his men were all clapped in irons and put below decks on the Catholic galleys to work the oars, and they would stay there for some years. The prisoners, the Italian prisoners that had been captured by the corsairs, they were all returned home, and Charles V ordered three new towers built to replace that destroyed Roman fortress that would combat any future raids from the Ottomans. But when word of Dragut's capture, and the capture of most of his fleet, reached Istanbul, the sultan sent a messenger out to Hizir Barbarossa. Barbarossa was being recalled from his retirement. The empire needed him. Barbarossa's first order of business was an attempt to secure the release of Dragut, his friend and ally. He offered exorbitant ransoms for Dragut, but all of them were declined. Charles didn't want any money, and his servant, Doria, wouldn't accept any. See, Charles's coffers were filled with Aztec gold and Inca silver. All of the riches of Central and South America now belonged to him. Charles didn't want money. His American colonies may have made him the wealthiest ruler in the world. What he wanted was Barbarossa's allegiance. That is the one thing Emperor Charles V could not get. That may have been on his mind on one day in early 1541, while his carriage was making a procession through the city of Madrid, his Spanish capital. On that day, in the late winter or early spring, there was a crowd surrounding his carriage. There usually was, and they were kept at bay by the guards, but most of them were there to sing their praises of their king. But on this particular day, a haggard-looking man burst forth from the crowd and broke through the line of guards and accosted the carriage. He was wearing clothes that were stained and torn and in ill repair, but it was clear that they were once fine clothes, if at least ten years or so out of date. This haggard-looking man looked angry. Charles's guards got him under control. They lowered their lances and they drew their swords, and they were on the cusp of arresting him, or perhaps killing him, but Charles stopped them. Those clothes had once been fine, truly fine work. This piqued the emperor's interest, so he addressed this assailant and asked just who the man thought he was. The man replied, quote, I am a man who has given you more provinces than your ancestors left you cities. End quote. That may have been an exaggeration, but if so, it wasn't much of one. All of this gold and silver that was making Charles such a wealthy man, this vagrant may have been responsible for as much as a third of it. Most of the gold coins in Charles's coffers had been coined in mints established by this vagrant. And well, there was a reason that King Charles spent his time in Madrid and not Vienna. He was the Archduke of Austria and the Holy Roman Emperor, but he left most of those duties to his brother. Why? Because at the moment, the kingship of Spain was a far more significant position. 
His imperial holdings as king of Spain stretched much farther than any others he held, and much of that territory, not to mention the riches and slaves that came with it, were due very directly to the man standing before his carriage in this street in Madrid. That vagrant was the conquistador Hernán Cortés. He'd fallen on hard times, though. Rival conquistadors in Mexico had been nipping at his holdings, and internal strife and division from within had toppled him. He had at least a dozen lawsuits out against him from people in the New World that were alleging brutality and an unfair way of ruling over his dominions. Hernán Cortés was just about broke. He was... He had a very large income from all of his estates in the New World, but the amount of money he owed eclipsed that. He was unable to get an audience with anybody of note in Spain, which is why he accosted the carriage of King Charles. Charles saw an opportunity here, though. He would be able to get those lawsuits brushed aside. He could see that Cortez's debts were, if not immediately paid, at least ignored and he could shelter Cortes from any further allegations. All that the conquistador had to do was to leave America behind him and work for Charles in dealing with the Mediterranean. Turns out that seemed to be a pretty sweet deal, and Cortes accepted that. Soon enough, he was joining in on the meetings with Andrea Doria and the other military officials about just how to deal with Barbarossa. Now, he was never accepted as a member of those military councils. He was never a peer to Andrea Doria or any of the other generals. He was persona non grata due to many of the allegations against him. But those generals and admirals would use his experience and his expertise. And the emperor was planning something big. Cortes might just be the right man for the job here. If we were to assume that Charles was in fact collecting Barbarossa's allies in a bid to turn him against Suleiman, that does paint his next target in a clear light. Barbarossa spent most of his time at sea, or in one or another of the seaside fortifications in Greece and Eastern Europe. He rarely spent any time at what should have been his home, doing the business of ruling, he was the king of Algeria, and he would normally have been in Algiers, but there was bigger business dealing with Charles and his forces on the sea. He had left the city in the capable hands of a man named Hassan Aga. Now, Aga was a lifelong administrator. He was a diplomat and a politician of the highest order. He had run the administration of Algiers when Barbarossa still inhabited the palace back in the early days, and Barbarossa left him in control of the city all the way back in 1532, back when he was called to Istanbul to stand before Suleiman. If Barbarossa was the king of Algeria, he was... he was a king in absentia. Hassan Aga was a secretary of state, but effectively he ruled over the kingdom. Now, from here on out we're going to refer to Hassan Aga strictly as Aga, because... The city of Algiers was home to another notable Hassan, Hassan ibn Hizir. Hassan, the son of Hizir, he was Barbarossa's son. We'll call him Hassan, or perhaps Hassan Pasha, when he attains the title. Now, Hassan was left in the care of Aga, there in the palace of Algiers. 
There is an old cultural quirk in parts of the ancient Muslim world that's very similar to some of those of the ancient Greeks. Young boys would often be warded to older men who would teach them and generally take them under their wing, but there was often a sexual aspect to this relationship, especially in the higher echelons of society. Now, how widespread this practice actually was remains up to debate, but that particular quirk does still exist and is socially accepted in some of the more remote parts of the Muslim world. There are some warlords deep in the mountains of Afghanistan, or at least there were, that were notorious for this sort of thing. But despite his Greek and Muslim roots, this was a practice that Barbarossa didn't want to see going on. See, his son's guardian, Aga, was a eunuch. But the presence of the two Hassans, Aga and Hassan Pasha, well, they made Algiers a tempting target for King Charles. In fact, he had intended to take the city more than a year earlier, but there were some nasty storms that delayed that expedition. Now, though, Dragut, who had been defending Algiers, was in chains. All Algiers had to defend her now was a eunuch and a young boy. Charles, on the other hand, had Andrea Doria and Hernan Cortez to plan his assault, two of the most skilled leaders in the world. However, both of those skilled leaders were opposed to the entire idea. Cortez was a general, mostly based on land, and he thought that an overland campaign through Austria and into Ottoman-held Hungary would make better sense tactically speaking. Doria, on the other hand, thought it was extremely stupid to transport troops across the sea in a time of year when the Mediterranean was notorious for terrible storms that could arise with virtually no notice. Both of these men brought their concerns to their king, and then both of them mentioned the problems in Morocco. Morocco was in a state of open revolt and warfare. The Spanish forces would not be able to rely on a safe harbor anywhere, at least not one that would be useful for them. But Charles was the emperor, and he chose to ignore them. On 28 September 1541, a fleet of 130 war galleys and over 550 armed transport ships that carried nearly 40,000 soldiers set sail from Spain. Now, on their way to Algiers, the Knights of Malta, mostly German and Italian Knights of Malta, joined up with King Charles. It was those knights that made a landing and established a beachhead near the city of Algiers. Aga, the Prime Minister, ordered sorties sent out from the city to disperse those Maltese knights. This was a delaying tactic. He needed time to gather his forces. Now, all of those sorties were repelled by the Knights of Malta, but they did keep the knights fighting all throughout the night. When morning finally arrived, Charles himself landed, at the head of several hundred troops that were there to relieve the Knights of Malta. They did so successfully. The Knights of Malta were able to pull back, and Charles's forces could take over the fight. Now the sorties from the city continued, but more and more Catholic troops were arriving on the shore every hour. This was looking very much like a sure thing, a victory for Charles. And he had every reason to assume that it would be. Remember his two other expeditions to North Africa? 
One of them ended in the death of Arouge Barbarossa, and the second ended in his capture of Algiers about ten years ago. And he had 40,000 troops. Algiers had, at best, 9,000. But the process of disembarking could be a long one. It took time for the men to go from the galleys to the shore, for the men to unload all of their gear and themselves, and then for the galleys to get back to the boats. And while all of that was going on, one of those terrible, sudden storms arose, and it was violent. In only a few minutes, 33 troop transports were smashed against the rocks in the bay. Several thousand Spanish troops drowned. Now Andrea Doria was still at sea in charge of the fleet, and he was forced to pull all of the ships back into the sea. This was the only way to save the lives of tens of thousands of men. But that left King Charles, Hernan Cortes, and the Knights of Malta, and maybe as many as 2,000 troops there on shore. That was an insignificant force compared to the 9,000 that Algiers had within her walls, and that was everything they had to defend the emperor. This was a weak moment, and Charles knew it, but so did Aga. It was at that moment that the forces, inside Algiers, struck. Aga sent out a sortie in real strength this time to assault those Catholic forces. In less than an hour, he had the entire Catholic army surrounded, and it looked very much like this might turn into another modern Battle of Canis. However, the Knights of Malta... Well, they had pulled back, and they were some of the best soldiers in the entire world, far better than the militia of Algiers. The Knights of Malta were able to pierce into the Algerian army, to create a defensive corridor through the army, to break that encapsulation, and they made it all the way to the center, to Charles's camp. They were able to pull the Emperor and Cortes and most of the other senior officers out. They all escaped to safety, but not the entire army. Those 2,000 so-odd other men, well, they would all soon be pulling oars on Corsair vessels. Now, Charles got away, and they actually found a ship that he was able to put himself and Cortez and all of those other senior officers on. When the weather began to clear, they were able to begin the crossing back to Europe. But only a few leagues out to sea, it became apparent that this carrick that they had found was not up to the job. All of the men and equipment and horses they had were too heavy for the little vessel. They had to make a decision, and they threw every horse on board overboard. Andrea Doria, a few hours later, would return for the emperor just outside Algiers. Now, at this point, the emperor was already gone, and the army was in chains, so Doria as well made for home. I think he probably assumed at this point that the emperor had been killed or captured. And can you imagine what that would be like? What kind of a masterstroke that would be? They were so close to losing the emperor. I mean, I wonder how much would really have changed here. Charles's brother would have been there to take up the imperial throne. He would do so about ten years later anyway. Spain would go into the hands of Philip II, and in reality his mother, until Philip came of age, but Spain was a juggernaut. Still, though, imagine the psychological blow if the emperor had been killed or captured. How would Europe deal with that? In the end, though, Charles did get away, but he lost almost half of his forces. 
Most of them were claimed by the sea, but a few thousand were in Barbary hands or buried in shallow graves. Perhaps the greater loss, though, at least as it would have been seen in the halls of power, were the ships. They lost 17 war galleys and 130 troop transports. That would take significantly more time and more money to replenish than the dead soldiers. But Charles limped back to Spain nonetheless. If Prevesa, if the battle in 1538 had not determined the Ottoman dominion over the Mediterranean, at least in the mind of King Charles, this defeat at Algiers in 1541, that did the trick. Now, Barbarossa wasn't there, but he soon heard about the victory at Algiers, and he used this opportunity to put a lot of pressure on the Italians. He focused on the Italians, and as much as possible on the Genoans, in a bid to see his friend Dragut freed. But Andrea Doria, the de facto leader of Genoa, well, he had Dragut. He had him enslaved on one of his many galleys, and he was unwilling to even hear from Barbarossa on the matter. Say big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I do wonder if Dragut was there at the Battle of Algiers. It would have been a special type of blow. It would have really stung to have to row against his home and his allies to help his enemies kill his friends. And I imagine that if he was there, if he was at Algiers in the belly of some galley, he would have praised Allah for that fortuitous turn in weather, and he would have welcomed the storm even if it claimed his life. But while Barbarossa was killing and capturing people all along the coasts of Italy, things a little bit further north in Europe were really beginning to heat up. There was almost an alliance built between France and Spain right here. Charles came so close to negotiating a deal in which his daughter, Maria, would marry the king of France's son, the Duc d'Orléans, and get this, he would have renounced lordship of the Netherlands and Burgundy in favor of his daughter had that deal gone through. 
and that was essentially a dowry to who would have been his new son-in-law, the man who would one day become king of France. If they had married, if Maria and the Duc d'Orléans had married, the Netherlands would have been French territory. Imagine the ramifications of that. We might not ever have seen the Eighty Years' War. They may never have entered into revolt. There would have been significantly more Calvinist territory in France, and Henry V, that Protestant king of France, well, he might not have felt so much pressure to convert to Catholicism. France might have had a line of Protestant kings. Louis XIV might have been a Protestant king. The most Catholic monarch might have been a Protestant. And who knows, maybe that means that France never would have had a revolution, at least not the kind of revolution that they did have. Does that mean that if this alliance had gone through, we wouldn't have ever seen Napoleon rise to power? I don't know. There are a lot more subtle and perhaps more important socioeconomic issues that went into all of that, but these are the things that keep me up at night. Somebody should do a podcast about that. Regardless, the Duc d'Orléans would be unable to marry the princess, the Infanta of Spain. On a voyage through the countryside, the Duke was traveling with his brother Henry, and Henry dared the Duke to enter a plague-ridden neighborhood. Inside one of the abandoned houses there, Henry and the Duke entered into a brief duel with their rapiers. Just good fun, but they stopped only when one of the mattresses was in complete tatters and blood had been drawn on both sides. They entered a plague-ridden home, cut up the bed on which somebody may have died, and only stopped when their blood was in the air. Before entering the home, after being dared by his brother, the Duc d'Orléans boasted that the plague could not touch him. But that wasn't true. The Duc d'Orléans died about two days later. So that marriage and the treaty never happened. King Francis I instead declared war on Spain in 1542. Now, this all matters because France's strongest ally was the Ottoman Empire, and Suleiman was delighted to hear of a war between France and Spain. The war that was to follow was called the Italian War of 1542 to 1546. It was one of the later wars in the Italian Wars. Now, there was a bunch of fighting in Italy during this war, but it was really more of a general European war. Now, France was allied with the Ottomans, and that brought in Greece and Hungary and Turkey, not to mention North Africa, and a number of Protestant German and Dutch states allied themselves with France as well. Now, Charles, on the other hand, had Spain and the Holy Roman Empire and Genoa. Italy was also his, but once again they were fighting amongst themselves in a war for Italy that really hadn't ended since Rome fell. Both sides had significant power to call upon, and this was shaping up to be a significant war. But then, due to a whole bunch of problems that we aren't going to go into, including the very young Mary Queen of Scots, King Henry VIII of England joined the fray on the side of Catholic Spain. Now, this was kind of a big deal, because King Henry VIII of England had already separated himself from the Catholic Church, and this seemed to Charles like a very good opportunity to, oh, I don't know, marry his son to the King of England's daughter and bring England back into the Catholic fold. But like I said, we're not going to go into all that there. What we need to discuss here 
is the Ottoman fleet that was provided by Suleiman the Magnificent of 110 galleys carrying some 30,000 soldiers. That fleet was very significant, and it was led by none other than the admiral of the Ottoman fleet, Hizir Barbarossa. Now that fleet also carried the French ambassador to the Ottoman court, a man who had been living in Istanbul. His job was to make introductions between Barbarossa and the French commander, a man named Francois de Bourbon. And he did so when Barbarossa and the entire Ottoman force arrived at Marseille in August of 1543. Francois de Bourbon had ideas. He was much better acquainted with warfare on the continent than Barbarossa was, and he suggested at the very first war council they held that the Ottomans aid him in attacking the fortress city at Nice. Now, today, Nice is a part of France, but at the time it was part of an independent dukedom, and it was a part that the king of France wanted for his own. Francois de Bourbon had already attempted to take the city about six months ago, but a Genoese force, led by that nephew of Andrea Doria, had repulsed him from Nice. But Barbarossa had a much larger army than Andrea Doria. When I say that Francois de Bourbon asked him to aid the French in attacking the fortress city of Nice, he was really just asking Barbarossa to do it, and he would take credit for that with the king. Barbarossa placed the city under siege. This was just good military practice. But then he gathered the bulk of his forces together and attacked the city. There was one very large battle on 22 August 1543, and when it was completed, the city of Nice belonged to the Ottomans, or perhaps to the French. Now, the forces of Barbarossa set about doing what they always did after they took a city— they started killing and burning and robbing and taking slaves. But Francois de Bourbon and the French ambassador intervened in this. They wanted the city to be a part of France, not a burned and desolate ruin. And since it was technically the alliance between the Ottomans and the French that had taken Nice, those Ottomans were now killing and enslaving French subjects. That just would not do. Now, Barbarossa bristled at this, but this wasn't his business, this was the Sultan's business, so he relented. He ordered his men to stand down. But as the days began to war on, things grew more and more tense. There was a citadel in the center of the city that Barbarossa was unable to take. He blamed that on the fact that the French had not brought enough gunpowder for the cannons, and that was part of the alliance. The French were on the continent. They could get gunpowder through France easier than Barbarossa could carry it across the sea, and there just wasn't enough to take the castle. And this actually lost Barbarossa a key battle. The forces of Andrea Doria and Doria's nephew were able to capture that central citadel, and they were able to defend it from within with, I might add, plenty of gunpowder. Barbarossa was furious. He bellowed at the French soldiers and the French commanders, including Francois de Bourbon, quote, are you to fill your casks with wine rather than powder? End quote. And after that, he set the corsairs loose. There were no more restrictions placed upon them. By morning, they had taken 5,000 captives. They had taken chests and chests full of treasure, and they had burned half of Nice to the ground. Barbarossa may not have wanted to 
jeopardize the alliance between King Francis and Suleiman, but Suleiman was the stronger partner here, and King Francis was not likely to cancel the alliance while there were 30,000 Ottoman soldiers camped inside his kingdom. And those Ottoman soldiers stayed camped inside his kingdom for many, many months. King Francis actually gave, or perhaps he lent, the city of Toulon to Barbarossa. He ordered every civilian in the city to empty it, and allowed that Ottoman force dominion over Toulon. They converted the cathedral in town to a mosque, and they sounded the call to prayer five times a day. They stayed there all winter. This was actually a sound move on Francis's part, I think. It wasn't popular with the French civilians, especially not the citizens that lived in Toulon, but having a force of 30,000 Ottoman troops kept the Italian forces to the south and to the east at bay. It may have done some almost irreparable political harm to Francis I, but it was militarily a good move. But when spring was on the way, and the Ottomans were preparing to depart, a message arrived for Barbarossa from a French nobleman. That nobleman's name was Jean de Vallette, and he had quite a tale to impart to Barbarossa. First of all, Vallette was French by birth, and he was a peer of the realm, he was a nobleman, so he had the ability to speak with the king. But he wasn't currently allied with France. Despite his French birth and his French citizenship, which he still held, Vallette was currently an admiral in the Knights of Malta, a high-ranking admiral, and that made him by default an ally of Charles, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, Vallette had been on board one of the galleys that belonged to Andrea Doria, anchored just south of France. This was the force that Doria had marshaled to combat the Ottoman forces, but Vallette was just there to oversee the troops. Now, most of the galley slaves on board Doria's galleys were haggard and beaten. Their eyes were downcast. This was the typical stance for any galley slave. But on board one particular galley, there was a slave that stared back defiantly at Vallette, and he stared back with recognition. Vallette studied this galley slave, and then he recognized him. This slave was none other than Turgut Rais. He was that admiral and that notorious corsair that the Europeans called Dragut. Now Vallette and Dragut had fought against one another many, many times, Dragut was an admiral in the Ottoman Empire, and Vallette was an admiral in the Knights of Malta, and they had a long and contentious relationship. But they actually knew one another personally here. Vallette, as a slightly younger man, had once been captured, and for a time had pulled an oar on board one of Dragut's galleys, the galley that Dragut typically rode on. Vallette marched over to stand before the corsair, and said, perhaps sympathetically, Signor Dragut, Usanza de Guerra, it's the custom of war. Dragut replied, a bit wryly maybe, quote, Imutanza de Fortuna, and the luck has changed. These men might have killed each other, given the opportunity, but this story, if it is in fact true, shows almost a camaraderie. They were enemies, but on a certain level they seem to have been brothers in arms, the man who was in power in this situation shared sympathy. This is just how things are. 
and the man who was without power, currently chained up, had a bit of a joke. I remember when you were in this situation, you can see him giving that with almost a little wink. The message that Valette sent Barbarossa there in France contained an offer. He was, as a native Frenchman, a man that loved his country, and he wanted the Ottomans out of France immediately. He was willing to mediate between the king of France and Andrea Doria. Now, Francis and Doria were enemies, but Valette was in a unique position to talk with both of them. He said that he would even secure from Andrea Doria an offer of ransom and a potential release for Dragut. All of this if Barbarossa paid that ransom and agreed to take his soldiers and leave. Now, Barbarossa definitely wanted his friend freed. He had tried to pay a ransom for him before. But more than that, he was probably getting tired of France and of her awful winters, especially compared to the North African coast. He agreed to Valette's terms, and Valette stayed true to his word. According to Philip Gose in the History of Piracy, quote, Dragut was ransomed for 3,000 crowns, a bargain which the whole of Christendom, as well as the Admiral, lived to regret. End quote. Now, it was actually 3,500 crowns, but pretty close for 1932. And the whole of Christendom would definitely live to regret it. And... Valette would live to regret it more than most. See, Jean de Valette would go on to become the Grand Master of the Order of St. John, that is, he would be the Commander-in-Chief of the Knights of Malta. And during his tenure as the Commander-in-Chief of the Knights of Malta, he would be in almost constant conflict with Dragut. There was an army of corsairs out there, and under Dragut it actually grew larger and larger until it almost overwhelmed the Knights of Malta. And Valette would still be the Grand Master of the Order of St. John some years later, when Dragut, now called the Drawn Sword of Islam, led what history has called the Great Siege of Malta. But more on that next time. Now that Dragut was safe and sound, and now that Barbarossa was eager to put France behind him, Barbarossa sailed off for the island of Elba. There may have actually been some clandestine terms in the deal worked out between Barbarossa and Jean de Valette. Barbarossa had been unable to acquire certain information for some years now, and Valette was in a unique position to bring him that information. But whether or not Valette was responsible for it, during his time in France, at some point, Barbarossa had learned the location of a young man who was not technically related, but almost his nephew. He had found the location of the son of Sinan Rais, Although the son of the great Jew had been baptized as a Catholic and raised since he was very young at the court of Elba, Barbarossa meant to save him and return to the Ottoman Empire with all of his closest allies and their kin. The Duke of Elba heard from Barbarossa, but he was not initially willing to part with the boy, he called the son of Sinan his, quote, boy favorite, and he adorned the young man in perfumes and fine clothes and had a habit of pulling him out to parade him around the court. He was the son of the great Jew, the notorious pirate, but he has been brought into the Catholic fold. Barbarossa didn't have time for this. His patience was short. He had been away for many, many months, and he wanted to return home. So he sent the duke a final message. If the duke refused to release the son of Sinan, 
Barbarossa would open fire. And not just any fire. It was a divine fire, a fire of retribution. Barbarossa swore before Allah and before the Prophet Muhammad and Suleiman the Magnificent that if the boy were not released to him this very day, he would raise the castle and the fortress and the entire city to the ground. Then he would invade and take every child on Elba that had survived the barrage back to Algiers where they would be converted and raised in the Muslim faith. He would depopulate the island for a generation. Barbarossa received the son of his ally on board his flagship that very afternoon. But he wasn't entirely ready to go home. He did mean what he said. He was willing to capture all of those prisoners if his demands had not been met. That means that his holds were empty. So on his way home, he stopped by Sicily and Sardinia, and then completed his voyage at the island of Ischia in July 1544. That was his last raid, and it was a good one to go off on. He captured at least 5,000 slaves on the island. But then he returned to what had been his home, the city of Algiers, for the first time in probably several years. There he saw his son Hassan, who was now a young man. Algiers was also the hometown of Dragut, who returned there after four years as a galley slave. Sinan's son, the younger great Jew, had been in captivity for almost ten years. He might not have had memories of Algiers, but he disembarked as well. Barbarossa left his fleet to Dragut in his capable hands there in Algiers, but he did give him one final order not to lose it this time. And then Barbarossa left the lordship of Algiers, of his city and his kingdom, Algeria, in the capable hands of his son. Well, his son's hands might not have been capable quite yet. He did set the proviso down that if his son were to take power, he would have to keep Hassan Aga, the eunuch, in place as the top minister. And with all of that in place, with his affairs taken care of, Barbarossa sailed for Istanbul, and for his retirement, this time for good. He died there in Istanbul the following year, apparently in peace, in bed, in his palace by the sea, not so far from his birthplace in Greece. A mausoleum was constructed by a famed Ottoman architect of the time near his palace, in a place that overlooked the bay where Barbarossa had once reviewed his ships and where he frequently assembled his fleet. The tomb went untouched and revered for many, many years. It became a place of pilgrimage for Ottoman and later for Turkish sailors and a place of gathering for the people of Istanbul on certain holy days. But over the years, the tomb being so close to the sea, the elements began to take a toll. So, after World War II in 1946, the government of Turkey underwent a restoration. Now, first of all, they built an Ottoman naval museum nearby, on the street known as Barbaras Street, and then they commissioned a statue that would stand out in front of Barbarossa's tomb. It was facing the sea, in the same place that, according to legend, Barbarossa himself stood to oversee his ships. A poet who had died many years earlier, he wrote a poem about Barbarossa, and the authorities decided that that poem should be carved on the back of Barbarossa's mausoleum. That poem reads, quote, Whence on the sea's horizon comes that roar, 
Can it be Barbarossa now returning from Tunis or Algiers or from the Isles? Two hundred vessels ride upon the waves, coming from lands the rising crescent lights. O blessed ships, from what seas are ye come? End quote. Next time, we're going to look at the latter half of the 16th century in the Mediterranean. We'll pick up almost immediately after Barbarossa's death, and then get through about 30 to 40 years in very quick order. We're going to complete the story of the heirs of Barbarossa, and we're going to get ourselves ready to move on to the next stage of Barbary piracy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody as well who has helped to support the show, everybody who has left us a donation at the website, and there were a few of you these last few weeks, so thank you. I recently moved, and that made it quite a bit easier at times when money got tight. Everybody who has become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given us a review wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has suggested this show to your friends, without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this show, and I really like doing this show. So, to all of you, thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.